Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a flurry of bills in red state legislatures to criminalize abortion and in blue states to protect abortion providers, with Louisiana Republicans advancing a bill that would charge a woman, as well as anyone who assisted her, with murder if she got an abortion, while conversely, in Connecticut, a bill was just passed to prevent abortion providers from being extradited to other states. Joining us to discuss the next frontiers in the battle over abortion is Moira Donegan, a writer living in New York, whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum and the Paris Review. She's a columnist at The Guardian, and we will discuss her latest article, As the U.S. Supreme Court Moves to End Abortion, Is America Still a Free Country?, as well as moves by red states to ban medication abortions, which now account for 54% of all abortions. Then we'll examine rumors that Vladimir Putin has cancer and has had to hand over power to the arch-nationalist head of Russia's Security Council, Nikolai Patrushev, in order to undergo cancer surgery. Joining us is Ole Kotsuba, the manager of publications of the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. His research focuses on literature that struggles to come to terms with the experience of living in authoritarian states, focusing primarily on 20th century and contemporary Russian, Ukrainian and East European literatures and cultures. Then finally, we'll assess the economic consequences of the Fed's decision to raise interest rates by half of a percent and how that will impact the November elections and speak with James Galbraith, Chair of Government Business Relations and a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Having served in several positions on the staff of the U.S. Congress, he directs the University of Texas Inequality Project and is an advisor to the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025, and his books include The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandon the Free Market, and Why Liberals Should Too, and Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Moira Donegan, who's a writer living in New York. His work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. She's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is, As the U.S. Supreme Court Moves to End Abortion, Is America Still a Free Country? Welcome to Background Briefing, Moira Donegan. Thank you for having me. And Moira, you describe the author of uh, this opinion, which is likely to become law in terms of overturning Roe and Casey, Samuel Alito, as the most rapidly hateful member of the court's arch-conservative wing. Of course, it's a, <laughs> a bit of a toss-up between him and, and Clarence Thomas. But both Clarence Thomas and Alito, what strikes me is that they have the opposite of what is you could call a judicious temperament. These are angry, bitter men. And that's the last thing you want in a judge, surely. You want somebody that's reasoned and sober and thoughtful, not angry and bitter. Yeah, you know, I agree with you, Ian, that the opinion, the draft opinion that was leaked and was published on Monday night is, it is dripping with contempt. It is quite, as you said, angry. Uh, it cites Ruth Bader Ginsburg seemingly as a taunt. Uh, it accuses proponents of abortion rights, uh, of being eugenicists. It is a, uh, it is an, an, an impassionedly cruel and uh, not very robustly logical argument. And in terms of the title of the question, the rhetorical question your article raises, is America still a free country? It would seem to me, Amora, that it's not just going to be less free, it's going to be more fascistic. I mean, 
It's very reasonable to assume that in some of these red states, 16 of which have already had these trigger laws, and 26 in total, will jump on this opinion and make it law as quickly as they possibly can. For example, at Greyhound bus stations in these uh, states, young women, I'm sure they're going to have vigilantes, these Christian vigilantes, you know, with this Gestapo-like question, show me your papers. And we already have... In the state of Louisiana, the legislature this week advanced a bill, the Republicans in the legislature advanced a bill that would allow a patient who aborted a pregnancy, as well as anyone who assisted that patient, to be charged with murder. And in Texas, you have the most sort of Stalin-like law that if a young woman gets pregnant, and it could be, in case a girl, being pregnant by her father or uncle, she has no one to turn to because she can't trust anybody because there's a law that encourages you to snitch on people. And not only do you snitch on your neighbors or your members of your own family, for that matter, you get rewarded by the state with a bounty. So this is what I find appalling, is that we're not just becoming less free, we're becoming more fascistic. You know, Ian, I think, I think there's, a, there's a point to that. Uh, you know, I talked about this a little bit in my piece for the Guardian, but there's a tendency, I think, among uh, maybe, you know, some people on the left with their heads in the sand and some people on the right who want to downplay the extent of the cruelty of what they're inflicting on the United States uh, to pretend that, you know, Roe, you know, if without Roe, it simply goes back to the states and, you know, women in Texas will have to fly to California to get their abortions, but the rest of their lives will proceed as normal. Uh, and that's really a distortion of what we're facing. It's simply not the case. Uh, abortion is not simply a reproductive rights issue or a sexual freedom issue. It is about bodily integrity, bodily autonomy. Uh, and there's nothing more fundamental to the concept of citizenship, according to philosophers like Thomas Hobbes, than the right to control your own body. It is fundamental to your ability to shape the course of your life. It is fundamental to your ability to work, to contribute to the public sphere, and indeed to be a responsible and participating citizen. Uh, And without that, women's citizenship is curtailed to a point where it is not meaningful the way that men's is. And that's, you know, something that I think should really alarm all of us. But as you mentioned, also, uh, it is not simply that these red states and these anti abortion, misogynist crusaders in red states and candidly in blue states will simply allow what they profess to be the murder of children to occur in blue states. They are going to come after abortion rights nationwide. They are going to push for a federal ban on abortion, either through a piece of legislation once uh, Republicans control both the White House and Congress, or I think more likely through a uh, case at the Supreme Court that would recognize fetal personhood. Uh, and nor will the post-Roe world look significantly like the pre-Roe world. You know, before Roe v. Wade, uh, there was a significant risk of women dying from botched illegal back alley abortions. Now we have, thank God, uh, the access to medication abortion, uh, which is much safer and much easier to self-administer safely. However, we also have increasing surveillance. We have greater technological monitoring. Uh, We have greater ability to uh, understand where people are moving and uh, how they are spending their money. And so we are looking, as as the spokeswoman for NARAL put it in the New York Times today, at a shift from the risk of hemorrhaging before Roe to the risk risk of handcuffs after it. Uh, I think we're going to see a massive upswing in the criminalization of pregnant women, pregnant people, and their health care providers. Well, indeed, the state of Connecticut has just passed a bill that would prevent abortion providers from being extradited to other states. So they're anticipating what you're just talking about. Yeah, Connecticut has really led the way on uh, protecting abortion providers from extradition, uh, protecting them from lawsuits, giving them the right to uh, counter sue people from other states who might uh, attempt to sue them for doing their jobs. And also Connecticut uh, has taken, I think, a crucial step in adopting a law that would prohibit state officials from participating in anti-abortion investigations. 
Uh, your state of California has also taken an encouraging step in setting up public funds to help uh, people who are displaced from other states coming to California to receive abortions. There's actually a lot that blue state governments can do in this interregnum period uh, while abortion is still able to be conducted legally in some blue states. But I do think that's a matter of, you know, the coming months. And I think by next June, perhaps the June after, you know, the next two, three years, we're going to see Republicans enacting a national ban. So much for the idea of the United States. I mean, my God, we are becoming so much more divided. And this decision is is absolutely creating a massive rift. Well, you know, um, this is uh, this is part of Alito's argument for overturning Roe. You know, he said it uh, created division. He said it created uh, controversy. And what's controversial uh, is women's personhood and citizenship. And candidly, I think that uh, the feminist argument, the pro-choice argument, has a moral appeal that is greater than unity. Um, Abortion is a human right, and it doesn't really matter if people like it. Uh, women have an entitlement to it that is derived from their human dignity. Uh, but, you know, you mentioned that Dobbs is also going to be an extraordinarily unpopular opinion because there are a tremendous number of feminists in this country. There are a tremendous number of people, uh, in fact, the majority of Americans, a, a large majority of Americans who believe that abortion needs to be legal and accessible Uh, But we are also looking at a court that is not accountable to public opinion. And in fact, it seems increasingly indifferent to it. You know, we spoke at the top of our conversation about the taunting, callous, angry uh, tone of Alito's writing. And that is uh, symptomatic, I think, of an institution that has been captured by an extremely conservative wing and that has uh, indifference, uh, if not outright hostility to the Americans who disagree with them. And again, I'm speaking with Maura Donegan, who's a writer living in New York, whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. She's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is, As the U.S. Supreme Court Moves to End Abortion, Is America Still a Free Country? And in your article, you mention the idea that organizations like Aid Access will mail these abortion pills to women in the U.S. from abroad. The pills, uh, there are two pills involved, and... In 2020, it was found that uh, medication abortions accounted for 54% of all abortions. So this is something that is happening. But proactively, though, the uh, anti-abortion people are obviously concerned about this pill, aren't they? They're going to do everything they can. And how can they stop it from being sent through the mail? And also, a part of the FDA's uh, approval of it is that you still have to have a consultation with a physician. It can be via phone or through telemedicine. So let's talk a little bit about both how the medication abortions are becoming more common and they're certainly less expensive and much less evasive and much safer than surgical abortions. But the anti-abortion people are already trying to figure out ways to stop it. So is this the next frontier in this battle, do you think, Moira? Well, it's one of many frontiers in, in the coming uh, in the coming crisis. Uh, you're right that a uh, a medication abortion is much less invasive. It tends to be much cheaper. Uh, the abortion pill uh, is, is when people say that phrase, they're usually referring uh, to misoprostol, and in combination with another drug uh, called misopristone, uh, that is an incredibly effective abortion method. It was approved by the FDA in the United States in 2000. And it has been since then subject to uniquely restrictive, onerous, and medically unnecessary uh, limits on on patients' ability to access it. But we've seen those loosen up a bit beginning in 2016 and subsequently uh, during the pandemic when patients faced uh, the risk of contracting coronavirus, going to an in-person clinic, and the FDA uh, allowed for the first time those drugs to be distributed uh, via telemedicine. Uh, and eliminated uh, the requir- the needless medical requirement for an in-person consultation. And that has been made permanent. So that's good. However, states are already moving uh, to enact medically unnecessary bans on uh, these drugs, limitations on them that curtail their use very early in the pregnancy. And you are- have already seen states attempting to ban the use of 
telemedicine to prescribe medication abortions in spite of the FDA's ruling. So, you know, they've moved already to limit access to this incredibly safe drug. It has fewer fewer complications than Tylenol. uh, And they have already done so beyond what the FDA recommends, beyond what's medically necessary under these sort of facetious claims about protecting women's health. I think we will see the mask fall off after the fall of Roe and we'll begin to see outright bans on these drugs, uh, as well as other kinds of abortion methods. And we will see greater prosecution of people who prescribe them, including across state lines. So you mentioned telemedicine abortion, something that we're seeing increasingly uh, is doctors and and other medical providers in blue states and in uh, more permissive countries prescribing these pills to Americans living in places where abortion is uh, inaccessible or de facto illegal already. Uh, And there have been efforts to sue and to criminalize providers who do that. And what we are seeing in Connecticut, I hope what we will see in other blue states, is affirmative efforts to protect those providers from, uh, from those lawsuits. So since Texas, Missouri, Utah and Tennessee have already prohibited telemedicine abortion consultations, and even if the doctors are located in a state where abortions are legal, I mean, if the state where the abortion provider, where abortion is legal, we mentioned Connecticut earlier, is that sufficient protection? I mean, this feels like, you know, the Fugitive Slave Act of the Jim Crow era, you know, the idea that you can go after people in different states. is Who's going to win this battle? You know, that that comparison is, um, is, is one that you hear a lot these days. You do uh, see an effort in red states to enforce their laws beyond their borders, to limit uh, ability of women to travel to seek uh, abortions. You saw that uh, bill come up in Missouri. I think we will see it elsewhere. Um, The ability to sort of reach out of the state and uh, sue or even criminally prosecute providers in other places. Uh, You know, I think that it's going to be chaos. And the fact of the matter is that we have a militantly anti-woman Supreme Court uh, that is going to give this movement whatever it wants. Uh, You know, people who are apologists for the court or uh, who have a, you know, sentimental attachment to the legitimacy of that institution, they're not seeing the reality. The reality is that this is a court that has to be defeated because it cannot be persuaded. So what what would uh, President Biden's uh, new um, reproductive health task force that, that uh, Javier Becerra, the health, head of Health and Human Services, said in testimony before the Senate yesterday, Wednesday, that they're setting up. What could it do? You know, I'm, I'm going to be candid with you that I'm a little frustrated with the Biden administration because uh, they are responding tepidly and belatedly to what has been an ongoing crisis in women's rights and reproductive health care. Uh, they had the ability to send the National Guard to protect and and even perform abortions in Texas. They had the ability to reach into these states and enforce a federal right when abortion was a federal right. Now that it soon will not be, uh, they are losing a lot of their power uh, because they didn't want to violate norms. You know, their their commitment was to optics more than to civil rights. And I think that's that's a betrayal. Uh, I think you'll see Hopefully, the uh, Garland DOJ uh, brings some aggressive litigation. I think you'll see, hopefully, uh, the Biden administration lean on Democratic senators to pass uh, the Reproductive Health Act. But, you know, the time for action was at the beginning of his administration. The time for action was in September when the Supreme Court effectively already nullified Roe by letting Texas's SB8 go into effect. You know, the, this... Um, the sort of tawdry appreciation of the significance of the issue is, uh, you know, it's a little late to be helpful. Well, the House passed the act that you just mentioned, uh, what, nine months ago, I think it was. But in the Senate, you've got Joe Manchin, who is against abortion rights. And I think Senator Casey as well is also against abortion rights. And you could pick up the votes of Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, but... You're still short of the. Hey, I'm buster. sorry, uh, Susan Collins at least has uh, declined to 
support the bill as of today. You know, there's um, there. Oh, that's right. She has a, a, she has her own watered down version of the bill. Right. Uh, there. You know, there's an increasing, uh, I think, recognition among a more abortion rights activists that you know, women's rights, abortion rights, feminism. These have all been sort of a stepchild of the Democratic Party. They've been something that politicians. Uh, including Joe Biden, quite notably, have been, you know, a little embarrassed about, uh, unwilling to prioritize, uh, and unwilling and, and to sort of um, delay action on. And what we're seeing is now is that uh, the the right has not had that kind of indifference to the issue. The right has been very passionate in their commitment to misogyny and to restricting abortion rights. Uh, and you know, the more impassioned party is the one that is going to. Uh, going to collect on its investment. Well, just in closing, though, if the less passionate among us, uh, the Democrats, could recognize that this is just the opening wedge of banning abortion, will then move on to banning contraceptives uh, and then also interracial marriage and gay marriage and the real agenda of this far-right Leonard Leo court is to basically, as Steve Bannon said, to deconstruct the administrative state. They're going to destroy the ability of the EPA and of OSHA. They've already gone after OSHA and uh, CDC. We've seen the mask mandate end. So anything in this government that has the public in it, any government department, will just be eviscerated by this court accruing massive power to itself. And we go back to the pre-FDR days of of the court striking down FDR's efforts to alleviate the pain of the uh, of the Great Depression. So is there a way for the public to get it that this is just the beginning of a massive assault to change America back to a kind of oligarchical haven of the 1920s? Uh, you know, I think it's worse than the 1920s. This is, uh, you know, what what we're looking at now is fetal personhood in, in Louisiana. They've introduced a bill that just went out of a uh, house committee today for embryonic personhood uh, that would make any any abortion illegal. Um, what they are trying to enact on the on the gender side is a really a like historically unique and and quite uh, viciously enforced heterosexual male dominated uh, sexual order that will be unlike anything we've ever seen. Uh, forget about, you know, going back to the way our grandmothers lived. This is uh, much more restrictive than the way our grandmothers live is what they're envisioning for us. And, you know, I think those of us who are uh, alert to the danger and alert to the cruelty of this agenda have to be as loud as possible, both, uh, pestering our elected officials uh, with the with the commitment that the right shows in trying to take away our rights. Uh, that's that's as much commitment as we need to show in, in trying to protect and restore them. And also we need to organize outside of government, uh, donate to abortion funds, uh, donate to legal defense funds, uh, such as if, if, when, how, which provides um, legal services for people prosecuted for their pregnancy outcomes, donate to places like uh, the National Advocates for Pregnant Women, you know, there's um, there's a long fight ahead and the court's ruling is only the beginning of it. Well, Moira Donegan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. It was a pleasure. Likewise. And again, I've been speaking with Moira Donegan, who's a writer living in New York, whose work has appeared in the London Review of Books, Book Forum, and the Paris Review. And she's a columnist at The Guardian, where her latest article is, As the U.S. Supreme Court Moves to End Abortion, Is America Still a Free Country? We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining rumors that Vladimir Putin has cancer and that he's had to hand over power to the arch-nationalist head of Russia's Security Council, Nikolai Petrushev, in order to undergo cancer surgery.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Ole Kotsuba, the Manager of Publications of the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. His research focuses on literature that struggles to come to terms with the experience of living in authoritarian context, focusing primarily on the 20th century and contemporary Russian, Ukrainian, and East European literatures and cultures. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ole Kotsuba. Thank you. A pleasure to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And what do you make of these rumors coming out of Russia being published on the popular Russian telegram channel General SVR, SVR being the Foreign Intelligence Service of Putin's Russia, suggesting that Putin has uh, either thyroid cancer or bowel cancer and he's been treated for some time. And now he's had to go into surgery and hand over power to the arch-nationalist head of the uh, Russian Security Council, Nikolai Patrushev. So what do you make of these rumors? Yeah, well, you know, it fits into the overall framework of uh, various narratives about, you know, this um, kind of uh, mysterious and and terrible leaders of of our history, right? It's not uh, very dissimilar to the fascination that people have had for Mussolini or for Hitler or for other leaders um, and uh, kind of trying to get into the head of the kind of the, the the guy behind it all is a very popular activity you know and has been um, so I think um, we don't we can, we don't know whether it's true or not there is uh, really uh, no reliable reports as of right now to confirm or to deny any of that information uh, we need to understand that um, there is there is a, obviously an informational warfare happening in Russia, around Russia, against Russia, against Ukraine. And so th- that kind of uh, news or th- these rumors, they circulate in that environment. Uh, what is more important, I think, is that uh, perhaps these uh, ideas of trying to get into someone's mind um, you know, are distracting us from what the actions of that man are. Uh, And the actions are absolutely horrifying. We have seen uh, the footage, we have seen reports on the ground uh, that, you know, Mariupol, the city of Mariupol has been literally grazed to the ground. Thousands, over thousands of people, you know, have been killed. Um, There are reports of, you know, and evidence of horrible atrocities uh, around Kyiv in the towns of Bucha, Irpin, Borodyanka, and so on. So while we are trying to understand and somehow rationalize how Putin feels and what he is afraid of and uh, how his mental state may be affected by this or that illness, these kind of atrocities are continuing. And so I would I would suggest that unless there is some reliable information, uh, to spend less time on um, you know this kind of uh, uh, you know I, I just I'm trying trying to find the right term for this. It's kind of trying to understand and to speculate really speculate i think is a good is a good term for this uh you know what is going on in the uh, in the mind of one person rather than spending time to talk and to and to try to help thousands over thousands of people well indeed uh but of course these rumors that are supposedly the source from this former russian foreign intelligence service lieutenant general whose student pseudonym is victor Mikhailovich, they're focusing on Putin's physical health, whether or not he has cancer and is having a cancer operation at the moment, as opposed to his mental state. And uh, frankly, I think his mental state is really basically determining in many ways this war, isn't it? I mean, this is his war. He has this obsession with Ukraine, and apparently he just had a complete meltdown when Kharkiv resisted and then Kherson resisted and the citizens, instead of throwing flowers on the tanks, rose up and protested and apparently he went completely crazy. So it would seem to be legitimate to question the sanity of this man who's doing such a horrible, cruel and unnecessary thing. Um, it, it It may be so. I understand that. And uh, obviously, you know, just even basic human curiosity uh, 
forces us to think about this kind of things and to talk about them. But we need to be very careful uh, about not somehow absolving Putin of his crimes by, um, you know, perhaps believing or assuming that he may not um, in his right mind, right? Kind of his, his actions uh, are nevertheless crimes. Uh, that's one. And number two, I think we need to also understand what kind of um, deterrent, um, unexpected deterrent perhaps, this kind of rumors create. Um, and what I'm talking about is the fact that um, uh, in, any, uh, in any kind of altercation, when nuclear weapons or any you know, mass, mass destruction weapons are involved, um, the adversary who makes a credible threat of using them always wins over the other one who may have an equal arsenal but has already signaled or is believed to be rational enough not to use it. And so the perpetuation of these rumors, and they have been going on for a while, uh, have basically created the impression that Putin is unhinged enough to drop a nuclear bomb on Ukraine, on the West, United States, or somewhere else. In response, that forces NATO uh, and other Western countries to be overly cautious in not responding to that kind of possibility, and in fact signaling that they themselves would not use the nuclear weapon. And so as a result, nuclear weapon as a deterrent works only for Putin right now. It doesn't work for the West. Because why? Despite the fact that the West has superior nuclear capabilities or superior capabilities, militarily speaking, Putin is more credible in the threat of using those his nuclear weapons. So that's really, I feel, you know, if we talk about this kind of the narrative that is being created, that's really what uh, these kind of rumors uh, lead to in the end. And as a result, we are we're spending more time talking about Putin and his mental state than talking about the actions of the Russian military on the ground in Ukraine. Well, indeed, I think the Ukrainians have paid a price already, haven't they, for excessive caution on the part of NATO. Uh, you recall a lot of talk about you know the no-fly zone and then refusing the MiG-29s from offer from Poland. Uh, right. It's only more recently that weapons have started to pour in I mean, obviously, it would have been so much better for the Ukrainian military if we'd gotten all these weapons, you know, months earlier. Yes. And here, honestly, we see a failure here of, uh, you know, kind of uh, international expert community. The fact that they believe that Ukrainians will f fall within hours, if not days. And that speaks to the fact that there is certainly not enough expertise available uh, and, and accessible to Western uh, leadership, to Western countries about Ukraine, because anyone who is an expert in Ukraine, even, even a little bit, knows and has seen the kind of reforms and the kind of uh, buildup of military capacity, not to speak of the spirit itself of resisting uh, Putin, resisting Russia, that you know have, has been present in Ukraine since 2014, at least, if not before. And so that kind of failure uh, is slowly self-correcting, but nevertheless, it needs to be acknowledged in order to, you know, make a better decision going forward. Um, and we see that, you know, the meeting at Rammstein military base in Germany, for example, where 40 uh, uh, ministers or secretaries of defense of Western countries have made a plea to support Ukraine until basically Ukraine wins. It's a major shift in discourse that was not the case before right so the realization finally uh, is settling in that the real the and perhaps the only way of ending this conflict and uh, of uh, removing russian threat not just from ukraine but also from other countries around russia is to defeat russia defeat putin and to demilitarize it to such an extent that it's unable to do this ever before, to, ever again to anyone else. So, Ole, there's an interesting article in uh, The Atlantic by Peter Pomerantsev, who incidentally was born in Kiev, and he interviewed families that had been occupied by Russian troops. In fact, they'd occupied their house, and not, their house was actually destroyed, but they occupied the basement, which was being used as a bomb shelter. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And this enabled the Ukrainian family to spend, you know, I think weeks or so with four or five Russian soldiers led by a captain. Mm-hmm. And they were part of a mechanized brigade. They weren't necessarily the frontline soldiers. Mm-hmm. But the, their attitudes were typical of the propaganda that the Russian people and the Russian military had been brainwashed with, with the idea that they're fighting Nazis. Mm-hmm. But it took the, the families quite a bit of time to get the Russians to recognize the absurdity of their claims. And what it turned out, that, that what these soldiers were mostly interested in was stealing stuff yeah. um, and even stealing their own equipment. So is there something to be learned from that? I mean, is it possible that you could sort of somehow undercut this propaganda both domestically, which state Russian state TV is just working overtime and they're getting ready for the May 9th Victory Day celebrations where they're going to really ramp it up. And I guess that's why Putin mm. is doubling down on Mariupol now yeah. in the hope that he can have some sort of a trophy. So yeah. is it possible, I guess it's called soft power as opposed to hard power. Is there a soft power answer to sort of disarming the Russians? Perhaps, but it's obviously this is going to be a very slow process. Peter Pomerantsev is absolutely brilliant in his studies. You know, his uh, two books that he dedicates to kind of how the Russian propaganda machine works. And he speaks as someone who has seen it from within, having worked in Russia at one of the TV channels and having seen how, you know, how this is all set up. And so the reality is that the more absurd and the more outrageous a claim is, the more likely uh, it is to kind of to settle in the in the mind of the individuals that are being, uh, um, you know, uh, um, brainwashed with it, right? Well, and, well, and well, that's happening here, Ole, in this country yes. with QAnon. Of course, it's absolutely universal. You know, it's a human nature. And the KGB, like no other, I think, secret service at the time and the FSB as its successor has mastered these devices very well. In fact, if you read any kind of manual of the KGB that are available now in open access, you will see that they are completely aware of how the human psyche works. And so if you plant an idea that is absolutely outrageous, for example, what they've been using, what is called the black PR, to, uh, and that's some, like, you know, talking about the QAnon here, um, the similarity there. Talking, so they would plant the idea that someone is a pedophile, and how do, you, and then let the other uh, person defend itself against that. No matter what that person says, that label is already attached to them, and so it's really hard to get an idea out of people's minds. And so, so what what it is going to take is um, direct experience. Uh, unfortunately, you know, people have. To experience some, you know, some kind of a tragedy, some kind of a loss themselves, in order to realize what the reality is. That's number one. Number two, someone who is close enough to them, who can tell them, and and be very persuasive, um, you know, without uh, seeming to have an agenda, to tell them what is going on. Uh, there have been attempts of doing that. So some Ukrainians who still have family and friends in in Russia and who have stayed in touch despite everything, they've been trying to talk to them. But, you know, many have have given up because it seemed just impossible when they would call, they would they would hear in response. Well, just just hold hold on for just a little bit more. We will rescue very soon. And then when people are bewildered by that and respond, you know, what are you talking about? (laughs) We are no Nazis. There are no Nazis here. What are you talking about? So only then kind of this realization begins dawning on them. And so I think that uh, on the the part of the West, it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot more creativity, um, you know, in order to diffuse some of that propaganda that that, uh, Russia and the, the Kremlin in particular has been pumping into its informational space. And uh, it's going to take years, probably, to you know, to return to some kind of semblance of normality. So, when you say years, do you think uh, that this war is going to go on for years, Oli? Right now, uh, Vladimir Putin has enough resources to continue this war, you know, for several years, uh, despite you know some limited sanctions, despite some you know withdrawal of. Um, uh, purchases of oil 
uh, the West and other and other buyers on the market of energy continue to supply Russia with enough cash to continue this war for many many years, and uh, partially that's the case because uh, Vladimir Putin is he he basically is not um, accountable to the voters in Russia. He man, he can manipulate the, the the perception of reality whichever way he wants because he controls the, the television, which is largely state-sponsored now or state-owned, uh, as well as the print media. And so he can sell pretty much anything as a victory or as a loss, you know, and so on to drum up support for himself uh, while continuing this uh, operation. Um, we hope that it's not going to, to continue for years. Uh, the only way to make sure that it doesn't continue for years is to supply Ukraine with effective weapons that are superior to Soviet-made or Russian weapons. Uh, we, we are beginning to see some of this right now. Um, so rather than, for example, what you mentioned earlier, but rather than delivering the MiG-29 uh, fighter jets to Ukraine, the West should be thinking about delivering F-16s or F-20s or F-35s and and coaching Ukrainian pilots to operate them uh, so that with a smaller force, uh, Ukraine could be a lot more effective uh, at defeating Russia rather than you know using the Soviet tanks or the Soviet aircraft. Well, it is, uh, you know, in terms of Russian propaganda, Zelensky re refers to the situation in Russia as an information bunker. And that appears to be the case. I yeah. just wonder, though, whether there's any... When does reality intrude? I mean, he's obviously trying to have a, have a victory in Mariupol mm. for May the 9th. Mm. If, is the propaganda yeah. so good in Russia that even if he doesn't capture Mariupol on, on May the 9th, he could still celebrate it? Yeah. A I, virtual victory. Yes, unfortunately, yes, I think so. And the, the reason it's so good is not uh, because of its inherent quality, but because it's so universal and all penetrating with very few exceptions and very few pockets of, of fresh air. Um, and so what I mean here is that the majority of Russians to this day uh, get most of their information about what is going on in the world from TV channels. And uh, as we know, Vladimir Putin, since uh, ascending to the presidency, uh, he has continuously either uh, closed down, eliminated, killed off, or uh, or nationalized basically all kinds of oppositional TV stations, journalists, uh, print print media, and so on. And so wherever you turn, you see the same uh, version of reality. And I think from our own experience in this country, we can compare this perhaps to you know, two things. One is the perception of COVID-19 uh, in certain pockets of this country where people didn't believe that it was real and were arguing that it's just an invention or that someone is kind of foisting it on us as an idea. And number two is the, uh, the big lie about the uh, elections. The fact that 70% uh, of Republicans, if I'm correct, to this day believe that, uh, you know, the election, the election were stolen and uh, in this country. And so that tells you that this kind of uh, right. brainwashing propaganda can be very effective uh, if people are seeing this constantly and they are kind of cooking in the same uh, kind of free, version of reality. Uh, with the difference that uh, in Russia, so if, if in the United States, you can watch Fox, but then you can switch to MSNBC, CNN, PBS, and so on. In in the in Russia, wherever you switch uh, the TV channel, it's always Fox, uh, Fox News, just a slightly different uh, phrasing, different hosts, different moderators, but the same version of reality. Well, Oleg Katsuba, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I'll be speaking with Oleg Kotsuba, who's a manager of publications of the Ukraine Research Institute at Harvard University. His research focuses on literature that struggles to come to terms with the experiences of living in authoritarian context, focusing primarily on the 20th century and contemporary Russian, Ukrainian and East European literatures and cultures. We're going to take a brief station break and back assessing the economic consequences of the Fed's decision to raise interest rates by half of a percent and how that will impact the November elections. Fall of a glory in 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Galbraith, the Chair of Government Business Relations and a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Having served in several positions on the staff of the U.S. Congress, he directs the University of Texas's Inequality Project and is an advisor to the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025. And his books include The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market and Why Liberals Should Too, and Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Galbraith. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, James. And what do you make of the... uh, raising the interest rate by the Fed of half a percentage point. It sent the stock market soaring on Wednesday and crashing on Thursday. So what are we to make of that? Well, I think it's a bit early to tell, other than it's obviously excited people with very short-term perspectives on Wall Street. Uh, but if you look over a few days, there hasn't been there wasn't much change from three or four days ago. And the Fed chairman, uh, Jerome Powell, seemed to shoot down the idea that they were considering a, an even larger interest rate rise. Is that, um, you think that's a firm prediction? No, there are no such things as firm predictions, which is why I say it's too early to tell what the impact of, of, the, uh, of, of this uh, action is. Obviously, it's not unexpected. They've been talking about it for a long time. Uh, what I would caution your audience, though, on is uh, this a tendency in the in the press and, and cultivated by the Federal Reserve itself and by many economists to translate what they've just done into uh, the idea that they're that they're fighting inflation. You'll just see this in all the headlines. What the Fed has done is raise the short-term interest rate, uh, and it may have some effect on prices because they. Uh, the major consequences in the short run is the increase in the value of the dollar. You can see this with respect to the euro and with respect to the Japanese yen. Uh, so there's, it's not as though there's there's no effect on prices. But the reality is that the what drove up prices was not low the low interest rates before. Uh, it was the it was the effect of the pandemic uh, disruption in supply and so forth on the oil price. It was the effect of the pandemic on the supply chain in semiconductors and other other industries. Uh, there's I think some effect of the uh, outbreak of war uh, in in uh, in Europe, uh, and that uh, uh, may or may not last very long. We'll see. Uh, but uh, the 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 rise the rise in interest rates has no direct uh, consequences or benefit from the price standpoint. All those phenomena. Uh, they only it only works if down the road there is a general slump in economic activity, uh, and of course that is accompanied by a rise of unemployment and fall of of, of output. So it's through the through the mechanism of creating a recession. Will that happen? Uh, hard to say. If they keep raising interest rates over a long period of time, it may well, uh, but it may not happen soon. Uh, I, I keep reminding people that in 1994, Alan Greenspan raised interest rates, and a number of people, including myself, actually yelled blue murder over it. But the economy continued to grow for six years before it ultimately fell apart in 2000 with the crash of the Nasdaq. Uh, so uh, this is a this is a strategy uh, which where we, we 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 can we can predict it that if it continues to play out along these lines, it will ultimately end in tears. Uh, but uh, to, to say that it will do so uh, in, uh, in any short period of time, uh, I think is uh, is, is uh, going past what what knowledge and evidence permit us to do. So I take it you don't subscribe to these uh, views that. A recession is just around the corner. Well, we've already seen a decline in the first quarter uh, in real GDP, and that's uh, you know it's, it's substantially due to the to the rising prices of resources. Uh, and so, what will happen in the second 
quarter is you know, well we'll see when when the, when, the, when the data come out we may already be having a recession in which case uh, it happened before the fed jumped in with the rise of interest rates uh but uh, uh is this going is this per se a phenomenon that will that will put the economy in the tank in a few months maybe but not necessarily so when the fed chairman says that the fed tools need to work on demand not supply uh, Powell said there's a job to do on demand. What does he mean by that? Well, I suppose he means that people should consume less, save more, and uh, that uh, there should be higher unemployment. Well, that's the typical meaning of that. Well, it, uh, the reason you you want to maintain demand is, is is to keep is to keep people working and to keep the economy rolling. Uh, so, I mean, it's, a, it's it's just coded language for higher unemployment. Right. Well, during COVID, Americans did save, didn't they? I mean, up until Reagan, we were a savings-based economy, and after Reagan, we've become a credit-based economy. But there was a change during COVID, wasn't there, where Americans saved for the first time since the late 70s? Well, they did, yes, yeah, sure. The, 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 uh, the, the extended unemployment benefits uh, increased the uh, incomes of a very substantial part of the American workforce over what they had been before. Uh, while at the same time, they shut down and all the service activities meant there was very little to spend money on. Uh, so people prudently put the, put the, put the excess aside uh, and they gave themselves some, some breathing room. This is a very good thing. Uh, you know, it, you won't, it, it, a number of so-called mainstream economists have said, well, this was the source of inflation, but it's utterly self-contradictory. People were, in fact, saving more and uh, basically only spending out as they found it reasonable to do, then they're obviously not the inflation rate. Uh, wages are not driving the inflation rate because wage, the share of wages and total output has been falling uh, and total incomes has been falling. Uh, what's driving the inflation rate has been supply bottlenecks. It's been the, uh, the, the the rise of of oil prices from a very low base in 2020 to a much higher one in in 2021, uh, which is still not fully worked out of the of, of the data. Uh, uh, and um, uh, and and the disruptions in semiconductor which raised the price of, of used cars, plus the fact that people put uh, a fair amount of their savings into into uh, into real estate, into housing, uh, and that drove up housing prices in parts of the country. Uh, well, that's a price of something that's already been produced. It's not a newly produced item. And again, I'm speaking with James Galbraith, who's a chair of government business relations and a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Having served in several positions on the staff of the U.S. Congress, he directs the University of Texas Inequality Project and is an advisor to the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025. And his books include The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market and Why Liberals Should Too, and Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know. But in terms of politics, it would seem to me that Biden, uh, of course, is obviously concerned about inflation, particularly oil prices and food prices. But surely the culprits here are Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia on oil, and of course Putin, I guess, as well, because of OPEC Plus, and also the the meatpacking business. I mean, we're, farmers are suffering. They're not making any money from their poultry and pigs and and beef, whereas the meatpacking companies, four of which, two of which, Smithfield is owned by the Chinese and the other one is owned by Brazilians, they're making out like bandits. So how do you deal with those facts? And, I mean, is it... Well, is there, uh, 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 first, first of all, the fact that, that meatpacking companies may be owned by... Some other countries' nationals, uh, I think, is almost completely irrelevant. They, if, where they own, there's no evidence that the the ones owned by uh, our own uh, uh, capitalists are, are better behaved. Uh, so just to lay that aside. Uh, but yes, and generally, uh, you're you've got a a squeeze on the costs 
of people in important productive sectors. And you just mentioned the whole agricultural sector is, is uh, you know, they have to pay a higher price for fuel. They have to pay a higher price for fertilizer. Um, and they're not getting a higher price from the from the uh, uh, the cartels to which they sell. This is a classic problem that the farmer faces in these circumstances. Uh, is this going to be helped by higher interest rates on their debts? No, obviously it's going to be made worse. Uh, what they will do, if they have to do, if they want to stay in business, is take out loans at those higher rates, and that's going to put them in a squeeze. Uh, and so they're going to get un- more and more unhappy as time goes on. That's just the concept. We think through the consequences of higher interest rates. This kind of thing you should focus on, rather than the sort of the abstract notion that somehow this is going to uh, cure the problem of inflation. It isn't doing that it has very specific impacts on 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 sectors that that rely on 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 particularly on short-term debts uh, and the farm sector certainly is one in, in, in that uh, falls into that category so what can biden do since he's taking the blame in effect can he shift the blame can the public be educated well uh, you know one can talk about the the overall policy of the administration. Uh, but, you know, you are looking at a very unstable world situation. Uh, taking some steps to stabilize it might uh, might be helpful. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're not talking about that. Short of that, uh, well, uh, my, my answer is you need, to, you need to go consult people who know something about the energy sector and let them tell you uh, whether they have a way of uh, some, some formula for reducing uh, the, the the prices to the American consumers, other than the very short-term thing of which is already being done of releasing reserves from the strategic reserve, uh, and I don't have an answer. I don't have a, a good answer to that personally. It's not it's not an area of my own expertise, but I certainly wouldn't turn it over to the central bank. Uh, again, you can talk about what the central bank can do when it raises interest rates. It's increasing the price of debt for people who have to rely on debt. Uh, yeah. Uh, ultimately, uh, if it continues and the policy doesn't work and they keep doubling down on it, which is a habit that they have had in the past, uh, then, there w- then the whole economy will crack and we'll be back to mass unemployment. Uh, but what we should avoid is the notion that there's some kind of s- something of a slow ending. It's another cliche is constantly repeated that the Fed is somehow going to achieve a reduction of inflation with no increase of unemployment. Sounds nice. Explain to me how they're going to do it. I do not understand. Well, in terms of energy, of course, the Biden administration had to sort of backpedal on going green in order to get get more oil on the market. And Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia is not even taking Biden's call, so he's not being helpful. And the Republicans did shoot down the nominee on the Fed who was concerned about global warming and wanted the Fed to take a role in terms of global warming. Right, that was, that was, that was Sarah, Sarah Raskin, an excellent nominee, of a very competent person with long experience on the Federal Reserve Board, uh, who would have been a, a, a first-rate person to be in charge of bank supervision. That was what she was uh, uh, specifically nominated for. Uh, and this is, you know, it shows it shows you where you are, where the some of the really dedicated uh, public servants uh, who uh, have been proposed for important positions simply can't get into them. Uh, this is a sad commentary on where we are in this country. Well, you mentioned earlier, James Galbraith, the rise in price of fertilizer. The war in Ukraine is definitely impacting that, apparently, because the precursors, potash, and other minerals are being. Uh, held up in both Russia and in uh, in Ukraine. What about uh, the rise in interest rates in terms of student debt? I mean, there's a lot of pressure on Biden to relieve student debt, and there have been arguments that he's not doing enough, offering ten thousand, and which is most people consider insufficient. Wouldn't the student debt burden be increased by these interest rates? Right. Uh, I'm not sure about that going forward. The the bulk of student debt has already been issued, uh, and it depends on what those contracts are. But I don't imagine that most of them are tied to the short-term interest rate. Uh, so it's a bit like having a mortgage where you where the, where where the where the payments are are fixed over a long period of time. Uh, 
are you aware of it being different from that? I'm, that's that's my understanding. So I don't think the existing burden of student debt will go up as a result. Although obviously people going forward may be affected. By that. Right. Well, there's a moratorium at the moment anyway. Well, just in the last couple of minutes then, is, is it in a sort of perhaps facile way, the assumption was that the economy has been good for workers or better for workers than it's been in the longest time. And then the fear now is that it's going to be less good for workers. Is that where we're heading? Yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, it is obvious this is an anti-worker action. It's an anti-farmer action. Uh, it, it is a, the old style of uh, so-called uh, well, it's the old style of, of, of monetary policy austerity. Uh, it is a a way of that uh, of, of supporting. Uh, I mean, it's obvious that if you have money to lend, a higher interest rate is better for you. If you don't, if you're a borrower, it's worse for you. <laughs> it's not. You don't have, don't have to have a degree in economics to see. Right. That. Uh, so right. that's what we're looking at here. And I'm afraid, since the administration uh, is responsible for these appointments, uh, they're going to have. They're going to bear down the road the responsibility for the consequences. So workers are worse off. But the other point you made uh, just in closing, James, is that the rise in interest rates of half a percentage point is not going to help with inflation. So it's a lose-lose, isn't it? Uh, it's not a very, uh, it, in my mind, it's, it, it is a very outdated strategy for dealing with the kind, and a wrong strategy for dealing with the kind of problem we're facing now. Yes. Well, James Galbraith, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. And again, I'll be speaking with James Galbraith, who's the Chair of Government Business Relations and a professor at the Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Having served in several positions on the staff of the U.S. Congress, he directs the University of Texas Inequality Project and is advisor to the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025. And his books include The Predator State, How Conservatives Abandoned the Free Market and Why Liberals Should Too, and Inequality, What Everyone Needs to Know. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now.
Wake up. To-